If you listen to part one of my interview with Texas A&M's Director of Emergency Management, Monica Martinez, you learned what emergency management looks like at one of the largest universities in the country. The sort of training and preparedness that a host of professionals undertake so a crisis or disaster is managed properly and efficiently for everyone on campus and even in the surrounding community. And if you didn't catch it, you can visit the Brazos Matters show page at kamu.tamu.edu and you can listen anytime. So today's part two will focus on the practical and important things that you and I can do to actually be prepared for emergencies, whether they strike while we're at home or at the workplace or even when we're out on the road. These are steps we can take that are pretty easy and affordable, uh, not, you know, building out a disaster bunker or something like that. Welcome to Brazos Matters. I'm Jay Sokol. And welcome back, Monica Martinez, Director of Emergency Management at Texas A&M. Thanks, Jay. It's good to be back. Yeah. So we hear a lot about having a disaster kit that's always ready to go, and I assume you have at least one of these. What's in it? Um, Well, so, you know, I have a first aid kit, of course. Um, I have three days of food and water, not just for me, but also for my family and for my pets. Uh, Flashlights, batteries, super important. I have one of those little wind-up batteries or uh, radios, you know, yeah. so that you can listen to the radio, uh, which is always important during emergencies and reliable. Um, I have a flash drive with important documents um, and uh, I have a multi-tool, of course. Okay, so let's stop there for just a second. You said three days worth of food and water. What does three days of food even look like? Like what's in that? Um, I mean, this can honestly, it just kind of depends on you. We're looking at, you know, bare minimum survival type things. For me, it's just making sure that I have enough stores in my pantry, right? That I don't let my pantry get to the point where it's bare bones and I don't have, you know, some canned food, um, you know, some uh, cookies, whatever it is, right? Uh, Granola bars, things like that, that you can easily pull out and feed your family if you had to. Shelf stable stuff. Shelf stable stuff. Yeah, we're not talking about having three days worth of gourmet gourmet meals available, right? But those things that you kind of have in your pantry that if you had to in that disaster, pull from. Okay. And you also said a flash drive with important documents. What do you consider important documents? Um, You know, for me, that's going to be important contact information, medical records, uh, vet records for your animals are always important if you have to go somewhere and evacuate with your animals, Um, you know. Uh, important contact information, insurance, things like that, that you might lose a cop- a physical copy of. Let's say you're hit by a tornado or something and you your house is, um, you know, a wreck, making sure that you have that digital copy somewhere as well. Hmm. Okay. So what else is in the uh, disaster kit? Um, you know, cash is always important during disasters. You are, you know, may not, your debit cards and the electronic systems might not work. So making sure you have a, a cash available as well is critically important. Do you recommend, I know this is subjective, but $50, $100, 200 I mean, what what is considered enough to get by? Um, you know, I think that's just really going to be dependent on what you can put aside. Hmm. Um, but I think any little bit is better than nothing. Um, right. You know, so many people today don't have any cash on them at any time. Right. Um, so, you know, just having, you know, $20, $100, whatever you can afford just to have that and just in case you need it. Okay. What um, else? Well, the other thing I was going to say, you know, so many times people feel intimidated by creating a disaster kit, right? It's like, oh, my gosh, I have to have all of these things. Um, you know, there's there's all of these lists that you can go out if you go to ready.gov slash kit. 
um, that has wonderful lists about the types of things that you should put in your disaster kit for your home. And then you should probably have one for your car and things. And, and people often feel overwhelmed by that. But honestly, you know, the the biggest thing is just starting that first step, right? I'm going to be at the grocery store today and I'm going to buy a few extra cans of, you know, food or I'm going to buy some granola bars to keep in my car. Hmm. Um, You know, little baby steps that you can take to slowly build your disaster kit over time is really going to how how you're going to accomplish that. Um, And so that's kind of the biggest message that I always say is that, you know, you don't have to go to um, the grocery store or, you know, Walmart or whatever and buy five hundred dollars worth of stuff to make this kit right instead kind of plan it out over time all right my goal for this next year is i'm gonna buy you know ten dollars worth of stuff every month for the next year and by the end of the year you have this pretty great disaster kit right yeah so do you have uh, some version of this in your car or at your workplace i do i do well so my workplace of course is in a bomb shelter in downtown Bryan. so you know in that regard i'm always prepared at work um but for my car yes i do have a smaller version of this that includes you know jumper cables and some cash in my car Mm -hmm. and um you know a little bit of food and water and a first aid kit and and those kind of things okay all right. And so I'm, I'm mentally picturing, you know, uh, what these kits look like, like the one for your for your house. I mean, does that occupy a ton of space or no? Well, you know, again, for my house, it doesn't necessarily have to be a big, giant tub full of stuff. For mm-hmm. me, a lot of it resides in my pantry. Okay. Right. Just yeah. So just making sure you have those items readily available within your home. OK. OK. So whether you live alone or you have a multi-person household, I think you advocate having an emergency communication plan. What does that what does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, one of the important things uh, to remember in disasters is that communication can be really unreliable. Right. Um, And one of the biggest things that happens is everybody wants to know where their loved one is in this disaster. Right. Is my loved one okay? Um, Can I communicate to my loved one that I am okay? Hmm. Right. Um, And so that's where having that emergency communication plan comes into play, Um, making sure that you have um, everyone's contact information saved somewhere other than just your phone. I know it's easy. We put them into our phone one day and we never look at the phone number again. Right. Right. Um, But, you know, having those important phone numbers written down somewhere else, putting them on your Google Drive or that, you know, flash drive that I mentioned earlier or having it memorized. You know, do you have your mom's phone number memorized? I know it's crazy. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, making sure that you have at least one or two of those important phone numbers memorized so that if you do finally get access to a phone and you don't happen to have your cell phone, you can text somebody or you can call somebody and let them know that you're okay. Um, But the other thing is just making sure, you know, uh, text message is usually the best way to communicate in disaster because typically your phone lines are, are not going to work. Yeah. Um, if you have internet connection for whatever reason, you know, you might even be able to get a message out on Facebook or on social media or via email, you know. But making sure that you've worked through this with your loved ones to say, hey, if something happens on campus, I'm going to reach out to you or, you know, you can reach out to me in this way or this is, you know, the the group of people that I'm going to reach out with uh, or reach out to um, because when something happens, everybody's trying to call to make sure that their loved one is okay. And so that's where just making sure that you have that network of people that you're going to communicate with and that they are going to communicate with you during those disasters. Yeah. So talk to me about the risks of depending too much on technology 
during a large-scale crisis? Because it's it's hard enough to get your cell phone to work even when you're attending a football game. But when there are power outages, network disruptions, or damaged infrastructure, you know, that could make things, as you were talking about, really tough. So what are some viable backup communication methods during times like that? Um, well, you know, smoke signals are really great. <laughs> okay, I'm um, on it. Uh, yeah, so get on that for sure. Now, um, you know, landlines, of course, are always that uh, fallback, but how many people have landlines Not today? Not You know, yeah. I don't even have a landline in my home, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th- those were always the, the ways that people kind of... Um, relied on in the past. um, And that's not really something that we have access to now. So, you know, again, I think making sure that you can find, you know, either an internet access somewhere, um, reaching out via social media, email. um, A lot of times, it's really not even about whether or not you can get communication out, that's important. But also, how are you receiving information is probably the more important thing. Mm. And that's where I think relying on radio, like good old-fashioned radio, um, because that's typically something that uh, is not going to go down um, and something that we are going to be able, from an emergency management standpoint, to be communicating with um, you know, public media to get that important information out that you need to do, to know in that disaster. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I've always loved radio is because of its immediacy and um, almost no matter what's going on. But what are some other sources of, of essential and reliable information that, that people should sort of know about and, and have at the ready if something's happening? Um, Well, honestly, the biggest thing is to sign up to your local emergency management office's emergency alerts and warnings, right? Um, So for on-campus, that's going to be Code Maroon. That is the way that we are getting that critical life safety information out to you as quickly as possible. Um, For the Health Science Center campus, that's going to be HSC Alert. Um, For the Brazos County um, at large, whether you're in the city uh, limits or in the county, that's going to be Code Red. Um, And so all of our emergency management uh, teams are plugged into these notification systems. And when is something is happening, we're going to be able to get information out very quickly. Um, For those of you who want to sign up for Code Maroon or HSC Alert, you can just go to codemaroon.tamu.edu and you'll see how you can sign up for those messages. And then for those in Brazos County who are interested in signing up for Code Red, you can go to brazosceoc.org backslash alerts and you'll be able to sign up and register your cell phone number and your address there as well. How do you decide what constitutes information that is, um, I don't know, important enough to push out through Code Maroon? Like, at what point does it exceed a threshold? Um, Yeah, that's a very good question. So we have, as I mentioned in our previous podcast, an emergency operations plan we have, which is available online, we have an annex that talks about warning and when and why we send out code maroon messages. So if you've ever been interested in why, what are the criteria, what are the notification channels for code maroon, because code maroon is not just a text message, right? It's um, an email, it's it's an app or it's the push notification to the app. It is fire alarm panels that read out the message. It's digital signage. It's a website, all of those different things. Mm. Um, and so, you know, for us, it really looks at um, what is happening on campus and our duty to alert the campus community to 
a life safety situation. So what I'll tell you is that if there is a fire in your building, um, Code Maroon is not the way you're going to learn about that fire, right? There's going to be other life safety mechanisms in place like the fire alarm and, you know, the smoke detectors and all of that that is going to alert you to the fire. However, if the fire is big enough and now we've got all of these first responders, you know, coming to the scene to try to put out the fire and now we're disrupting the campus and what's going on, then we might send out a code maroon to notify the campus community that, hey, this situation is happening and we'd like you to please avoid the area. So emergency notifications really are kind of a layered approach. Those individuals that are being affected by that disaster in real time um, are going to be notified probably by the other life safety um, mechanisms that we have built into our facilities. And it's only after we have, um, you know, been notified of that emergency and we know that this is going to impact the rest of the campus, that's when we would be sending out a Code Mm. Maroon. So one more thing about Code Maroon, just because I'm I'm curious, you know, how many people generally have to be involved in making the decision to say, yes, push it out? Because I'm guessing you're you're sort of the fingers behind the message that, that eventually goes out. But you know, how many people have to come together to, to make that decision? So it really depends on the situation. Um, and I know that's probably not the answer that everybody wants, right? You want it to be cut and dry every time it's going to be this criteria. Um, but if it is a, um, you know, critical life safety situation. We have an active threat on campus, um, active shooter, um, you know, something like that that we know is happening, a tornado warning where, you know, time is of the essence. Um, then we have a very short chain of command to make that decision. And it really is the police officer in charge um, and the university dispatch communicator who can push that message out, you know, without any questions. Um, They have the authority to do that. If it's a situation that, um, you know, let's say there's a gas leak and it's small and it's contained and we don't know if it's going to affect the broader campus or not or if it's going to have other implications well maybe we have time you know it's under control the fire department is there and utilities is there then we have a little bit more time to send that message up the chain and decide okay is this big enough for us to send out a code maroon or is it something that's isolated and going to be handled and it's not going to have an impact to campus therefore Mm -hmm. we don't need to send something out so it really just depends on the situation if you just tuned in, I'm Jay Sokol. You're listening to Brazos Matters, and my guest is Monica Martinez, Director of Emergency Management for Texas A&M University. And we're talking about what you and I could do to help keep ourselves prepared and safe when an emergency or a disaster occurs. So some during some emergency um, response scenarios that we've encountered here, it seems like there are more and more real plans in place for people with pets or other animals that require being moved from a location that's in potential jeopardy, you know, to a well-equipped and well-staffed place of safety. So whether we're talking about my 14-year-old super beagle tiger or someone's horse, like what plans should we have in place ahead of time? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the biggest thing is to always have copies of your vet records um, with you because you never know, um, you know, if, if you do have to evacuate for some reason and you do show up at a shelter, um, the they're going to need to know what those vet records are. Um, so make sure that you have all appropriate documentation for your pets is probably the, the biggest thing. Um, next, you know, just like with that disaster kit that I was talking about earlier, making sure that you have enough food, water for your pets, leashes, harnesses, 
kennels if you have them, if you are evacuating, um, you know, any type of medications that they might need, et cetera. Um, you know, because again, you don't know exactly what the requirements of that shelter is going to be. One thing from an emergency management standpoint that we have learned, especially when we're talking about coastal evacuations during hurricanes and other severe weather, is that people will not evacuate without their pets, right? And so yeah. we, from an emergency management standpoint, have to plan to accommodate that in some way. And um, and so we're working very hard with our animal shelters and others to have those plans in place. But we are going to be relying on you, the pet owner, to come with as many um, things to support your animal as possible, like their food, like their medications, kennels if you have them, and also be prepared when you arrive at the shelter to be the primary caretaker of your pet. So, you know, you might arrive at a shelter. Sometimes they're co-located shelters, um, but oftentimes, you know, your pet might be in a different location um, and you're going to have to go to that location twice a day to let out your animal or to to care for them or things like that. So those are things that you need to consider as well as you're looking um, on your evacuation path if you have to and for these shelters. For our large animals, you know, I will say that many times um, our large animal community is very prepared, um, you know, on on what to do. They're very used to traveling, especially if they're like horse shows or livestock shows or things like that. Mm. But again, it's making sure that you have a reliable means of transportation for your animal, that you call ahead to, you know, the county extension office um, or to local emergency management to see if there's any large animal shelters going on or open. For us, uh, typically the Brazos Expo Center has opened their doors to the large animal community um, for people who are seeking shelter, especially from our coastal hurricanes and things like that. Um, But again, just, you know, making sure that you have those plans in place ahead of time so that you're not scrambling at the time of the disaster to try to figure out where you might be going. Is it naive for me to think that our community is probably much better suited and prepared for that sort of thing than most communities, simply because we've got Texas A&M and all of its resources. And uh, I don't know, it just feels like we may be in better shape in that regard than a whole lot of other places. I will say that we are very, very blessed as a community to have the resources available to us that we do, um, you know, between our partnership with the um, animal hospital, um, with our local, there's a um, animal um, welfare committee um, that Brazos County Emergency Management kind of coordinates to plan for, you know, our animal population during evacuations and things like that. We have the Expo Center, which is, you know, a beautifully equipped facility for our large animals that are coming in. And so we are very, very fortunate as a community um, to have access to all of these resources. But again, it's not just having the access. It goes back to our first uh, session together where, where it comes to that planning and that coordination and those relationships that we build with all of those organizations to be able to pull from them um, during those disasters. Yeah, makes sense. Now, you have young kiddos, right? I do. So have you actually practiced any kind of emergency drills with them to make sure they know what to do? Um, Yes. Um, You know, again, being the uh, emergency preparedness mom, that's part of what we do. And, you know, so many times people think that these conversations have to be formalized or, you know, even, you know, when we're talking about this at work or, um, you know, at home, that we have to have like this formal process or plan for this. But a lot of it is just talking about it with your kids or with your family or with your coworkers. Hey, 
if something were to happen, you know, this is how we evacuate, you know, the house or this is our meeting place outside. Or if something happens to mom, this is how you pick up the phone and call 911, especially important with our small children. Because now, you know, that we don't have landlines, that's not really something that kids learn, right? Pick up the phone, call 911 in an emergency. Um, For me, I've tried to also tell my kids, you know, if something happens to, you know, me, run outside to the neighbor, right? Knock on the door, um, get somebody, get an adult to come and help if if something happens or whatever, and you can't get my phone or you can't call 911. So a lot of it is really just having those conversations on a regular basis. Um, You know, you're sitting around the dinner table and it's like, hey, you know, if something were to happen, you know, this is our evacuation route or this is what we do um, and just kind of building that in because our kids are listening you know that's why we have all of these programs in elementary school stop drop and roll and you know the fire department's visit or they come home with this health information they want us to be safe um so capitalize on that and and, you know that culture preparedness that you can build in with your children are you seeing any signs that that you are raising uh kids who are emergency preparedness nerds (laughs) um i don't know if they're nerds but i definitely would say that they pay attention to the emergencies that are happening mostly because they know when there's an emergency happening um you know mom's going to be uh probably busy handling it i can tell you that there have been times during tornado warnings uh where i have been in my safe shelter in the pantry with my toddler and my um you know preteen and my husband and my dog um and my laptop trying to monitor the weather and send out the next code maroon so (laughs) you must have a heck of a pantry (laughs) it it is a pretty big pantry we're very fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just have to think that um, your kids are having conversations with their friends about, uh, do you know what to do in cases of such and such? And the, their friends are like, what are you even talking about? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's who they are. <laughs> so I live in a pretty traditional neighborhood and I, I have, you know, a decent amount of square footage to work with. What are reasonable things that students, especially the ones who live in dorms on campus, should do in terms of preparedness? Because I would think most are are kind of unfamiliar with places and roadways and resources and that sort of thing. And we would kind of rely almost entirely on the university to tell them what to do. So in terms of space limitation and and them knowing what to do, um, what does that look like for you in your office? Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think For students, again, building a disaster kit can kind of seem overwhelming, right? Um, What all do I need? But honestly, so many of them probably already have elements of this in the backpack that they carry around every day, right? Mm. Make sure you have some granola bars. Make sure you have a bottle, either empty or whatever, that you can refill with water. Uh, Make sure that you have a little mini first aid kit, right? Um, Make sure you have kind of those important things that you need, a a cell phone charger or something like that, right? That's the start of a disaster kit, right? It doesn't have to be this big, complicated thing. Um, You can build little pieces over time based on, you know, what it is that you need. Um, And so that's kind of the biggest thing for me. Um, The other thing is just making sure to pay attention to your surroundings, right? What is going on around me? Is the weather going to get bad this week? Um, You know, should I have that umbrella? Again, building that culture of preparedness. Um, And then also just, again, paying attention to the emergency notification and information that's coming out from the university because we will 
tell you what to do. We will say, hey, this is a safe location or this is where you need to go to seek safe shelter um, or things like that. And so making sure that you are plugged into the way that the university communicates with you in disasters, and that's going to be Code Maroon. Is there any kind of effort to connect with families of students, especially new students, to advise them like, hey, it'd be great if you helped your students send them send them to school with this basic preparedness kit or, you know, have these conversations with. Is there any effort uh, from the university to try to have that connection with families ahead of time? So we do have some um, videos that play during new student conferences that everybody gets to see. We do um, talk to families during uh, new student conferences about downloading Code Maroon um, or Registering for Code Maroon, families can download the Code Maroon app. So for parents who are interested in receiving those messages so that they know what's going on on campus, that's a free option for them to be able to receive those messages as well. Um, And then we do have um, education outreach booth during our new student conferences to try to connect. We have something called um, the 12th Man Emergency Playbook that um, has information about what to do in different types of emergencies. It's available online. The information is also in the Code Maroon app, or people can stop by our table during new student conferences and pick up um, the 12th Man Emergency Playbook if they're interested in learning more. What kind of things are in that playbook? Um, what to do in, you know, when you get a code maroon. If there's um, an active shooter, it talks about what to do in that situation, what to do in a tornado warning, um, what to do in different types of medical emergencies. So kind of those emergency procedures that everybody should be familiar with. Okay. So you and I have, have talked in a previous episode, right, part one, about everything that you do and your office does and, and how that fits into the campus and a broader community. And then today we've been talking more about what we can do as individuals and as families to be as prepared as possible for something. What else is on your list with the last couple minutes we have here? What else did maybe we not touch on that you want to make sure folks know? So one thing that we didn't talk on specifically was severe weather, um, because I think that's something that can impact us all the time. And we just had that storm over the weekend. um, And thankfully, there were no tornadoes, but we still had some pretty strong winds and severe weather coming through. Um, And so I think just from a preparedness standpoint, making sure that uh, you're paying attention to your favorite weather app or your favorite meteorologist um, and just being aware of these types of situations that might come in, especially in the spring. We have a lot of severe weather that pops up, but now we, you know, June 1st was the start of hurricane season. Mm -hmm. Um, For us, typically the peak of that isn't until, um, you know, late August and early September, right at the start of the school year. Um, But, you know, just making sure that you're tuned in to severe weather because it is something that seems seems to be impacting a lot, us a lot more than, you know, maybe it did 15, 20 years ago um, that I remember. Um, and so just making sure that you're you're plugged into your favorite uh, severe weather notifications as well. Is there a specific um, weather-related app that you particularly gravitate towards? Um, so we have a paid uh, subscription service to severe weather because a lot of times I have to monitor lightning um, in the area. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, we use something with that for the for the emergency management team. So I don't know that I have any specific app, but there are so many great apps out there. Many of them are pulling from the National Weather Service information, um, and that's always a trusted source as well. Okay. Tell us how to... Learn more about what your office does and what A&M does in terms of emergency preparedness and how to, to follow you sort of day to day. 
Um, yeah, so you can go to www.tamu.edu slash emergency. That's going to talk about the emergency management program and our team. Um, if you're interested in fun and quirky information about emergency preparedness, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tamu Prepares. Um, and then, of course, for that emergency notification component, making sure that you are signed up to receive text messages from Code Maroon at codemaroon.tamu.edu. That sounds pretty good. Monica Martinez, thank you so much for this talk. Thank you. Brazos Matters is a production of Aggieland's Public Radio, 90.9 KAMU-FM, a member of Texas A&M University's Division of Marketing and Communications. Check us out at kamu.tamu.edu slash radio.